Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the advocacy group Stop AAPI Hate had already documented more than 3,000 anti-Asian incidents of racism before the Atlanta murders. Worse, the March 16th murders of eight spa workers, six of them Asian women, did not stem the tide of anti-Asian racist animus. Instead, the reported episodes of physical and verbal assaults have spiked. Now Asian Americans and allies are pushing for increased awareness and demanding legal protections. At a recent congressional hearing about violence against Asians, actor Daniel Day Kim urged swift legislative action. What happens right now and over the course of the coming months will send a message for generations to come as to whether we matter. In this recent spate of racist attacks against Asians, is history repeating itself? And after years of xenophobia amplified by COVID-19, which way forward? You know, the country has always been in trouble, and it's always getting itself out of trouble. And we're really interested in the tension between those two forces. Later in the show, the portrait of eight American cities and towns through the eyes of the citizens navigating struggle and working for change. HBO's new documentary, Our Towns, is an intimate look at quiet transformations happening across America. But first, joining me remotely, Cecilia Lay, associate producer for Vox's Today Explained and board president of the Asian American Journalists Association's San Francisco chapter. Hello, Cecilia. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Also with me, Janelle Wong, professor of American studies and core faculty member in the Asian American Studies program at the University of Maryland. Welcome, Professor Wong. Great to be here. Thank you. And Reverend Young Gil Lee, senior pastor at the Korean Church of Boston. Hello, Reverend Lee. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to have you all. Let me start this way. As I mentioned, uh, the incidents since the Atlanta murders have spiked. I'm taken by a poll quite recent that one out of four Asian Americans have experienced a hate incident, and more than two-thirds have been asked where they're really from. This is a survey by SurveyMonkey and AAPI data published recently. So I want to start this way. This is hard, even for people like yourselves who are accustomed to talking about the hard issues. How are you feeling? I'll start with you, Cecilia. Yeah, I mean, this has been such a challenging time. This capitalizes on a lot of fears that I think Asian Americans have been feeling for a really long time, even before the pandemic. And I think this heightened awareness is really amplifying a lot of the things that we've been trying to say. And I think also as a journalist, we take a lot of responsibility in trying to cover these issues carefully, but we're also navigating a lot of personal emotions around this. So I think straddling both sides of how to look at what's going on has been personally really challenging. And Professor Wong, how about you? 
Thank you so much for citing those data. I am one of the researchers at AAPI Data, so help to collect some of those data and put that survey together. And I'm feeling a mix as well. So very kind of tender time and a time of alarm, but also I think what we see in these data is a kind of connection between people. And so one of the things that is evident in that data is that Asian Americans have been experiencing an increase in hate crimes and hate incidents, but other groups also have been experiencing the same levels or more. So Black Americans overall face higher levels of hate crimes overall and other kinds of discrimination that are very serious, including police brutality and being discouraged from continuing on in their education. And so I think this is a moment for real solidarity, especially for Asian Americans to come together around these tragedies, but also to come together with other groups in U.S. life to confront the discrimination that so many are feeling. Hmm. Reverend Young Gil Lee, how are you feeling? Actually, as a pastor in our congregation, we have two groups, uh, which is uh, first generation and uh, second generation. Most of them are born in America. And actually, uh, the response from two groups are a little bit different. The response from the second generation, they are more fearful of this kind of incident. Uh, However, first generation, they have experienced so much even in Korea. So as for first generation is concerned, they are taking a little bit light. But uh, since we have our children's uh, second generations, uh, we need to be aware of this fact and uh, we need to do whatever we can do uh, for Korean constituencies. Well, Professor Wong reverently raises an important point that I think can't be said enough in this context, which is that this isn't new. So when I say that, I mean, it's not new in the last few years, but it's also not new historically. So I wonder if you start historically and frame for us why what we're seeing now actually has been ongoing. And I really appreciate the Reverend for bringing up that generational point. One of the things we do find in our data is that uh, people who are second generation, the children of immigrants are more likely to report anti-Asian bias. But the older generation has certainly felt it and We know that Asian American hate incidents and uh, anti-Asian racism, its prominence in U.S. life is cyclical. So even though Asian Americans are often cast as a success story because of their high levels of education and income on average, when there is economic stress and uncertainty over the place of the U.S. in the world, then people associate Asian faces with a foreign threat. So this was true in the 1980s when there were fears that Japan was going to represent major competition for the U.S. auto market. And we saw uh, increased hate crimes and uh, the murder of a Chinese-American man, Vincent Chin, who was killed by two white auto workers. We also saw when Vietnamese came to the United States as refugees in the 1970s, there was a backlash against that group and Ku Klux Klan members attacked Vietnamese fishermen. More recently in 2012, we saw a white supremacist who killed Sikh worshipers in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. And that was really 
the continuing aftermath of the war on terror and 9-11, when Americans feared Muslims and engaged in Islamophobic attacks on anyone who appeared to be Muslim. And so this is really a kind of continuing theme ever present in the U.S., this kind of fear of Asian Americans as perpetually foreign. Now you have, you introduce a global pandemic, a virus, which was pinpointed to come from China. And, you know, fast forward, there are some pressures on the economy everywhere. And we have a repeat of what you've just said. That's exactly right. And one of the most striking effects of the pandemic and the backlash against and blame of China is that the backlash is not only affecting people of Chinese origin in the U.S. Because many Americans don't make a distinction between different national origin groups, we see that many of those who are affected by the negative attitudes, uh, the racial scapegoating are not just Chinese, but people from all groups. So of course, you know, some of those killed in Atlanta were not Chinese. They were Korean Americans. And we've seen that attacks have ranged from those on Southeast Asians, a Burmese family in Texas, to Filipinos and other groups. And so really this shows that the experience of discrimination, unfortunately, is one of the things that really constructs the idea and the identity of Asians in the United States. So Cecilia, following up from what uh, Professor Wong has just said about how history repeats itself with regard to how Asians are viewed depending on economic pressures and and just your bottom line racism. You're a journalist and you're in the in the newsroom on the front lines of covering this story. But I want you to go back and tell me what the impact was of the xenophobia that was spurred by referrals to COVID-19 as the quote Kung flu or the quote China virus. And what that did in the midst of an ongoing spate of violence that maybe we didn't know about but was happening, what happened after that? Yeah, I think if you talk to, especially to a lot of Asian American journalists, we've been raising alarms on this issue since basically even before lockdown happened last March. Because as soon as, you know, we were hearing that the coronavirus was originating from China, we could even see a a direct economic impact on places like Chinatown, even in early January or February, where, you know, businesses were being vandalized or, uh, you know, there was just, just such a drop in businesses. And so even before there was attention on anti-Asian slurs or racism, we were starting to feel like things were going to build. And a lot of folks in the newsrooms were saying, hey, we should cover this. And I think a few did, but it hasn't been until videos started going viral, these terrible videos of elderly getting hurt, that suddenly people were thinking, oh, this is something we should pay closer attention to. And so the sort of escalation that we're seeing and the increased attention on the issue at this point, you know, there's a lot of frustration as why weren't we covering this sooner? Why weren't people looking at this this, uh, situation a lot earlier before people uh, started raising the concerns about it now? And so 
Asian American journalists have been on the front line of trying to advocate for these stories to be told. But I think another aspect of this, and this is a wider problem beyond the situation we're dealing with now, is that coverage in the Asian American community is already lacking quite a bit. And so when we try to dive into suddenly talking about this big problem, there's a lot of complexities here. And so I think at this point, we've thankfully reached this point of awareness that this is happening. But I think the question now is, how do we cover this in a way that's a lot more nuanced? And it alludes to a lot of these concerns that have traced back far, far beyond uh, the start of the pandemic. And I think uh, one of the missing nuanced pieces um, has to do with what Professor Wong said earlier, which is sort of lumping everybody together. There's a there's a failure to even discern that there are differences within the Asian American community and with the Asian community, period. And so to you, Reverend Lee, because you're Korean, your church caters to a lot of uh, Korean Americans. When the murders in Atlanta happened and prior to that, the references to the China virus and the Kung flu virus, did your parishioners feel it? just as other Asian folks felt it. Matter of fact, I used to have a pastor's group comprised of Caucasian and African-American and myself. Before the election, I told them that whatever the outcome is, Asian-Americans will be victim. This is what I foresaw before the election. In our congregation, we have some groups, I think, who are the business owners who want to have one side and the other intellectual groups, uh, they want to have the other side. Uh, so it is uh, kind of, I think, politically, we cannot say anything about politics uh, at the church service. And mm-hmm. I just refrain from it because of the situation of the Korean constituencies. It is kind of, you know, two sides of a coin. Asian Americans are very, you know, prone to be victimized, you know, not only, you know, white supremacy, but also other stuff. So so Mm -hmm. I'm very afraid of our congregation members. And actually, 10 years ago, we built a very nice church education wing. And on the outlook is kind of very beautiful big windows. Uh, whenever I see the windows, <laughs> sometimes I worry that uh, someone might I mean, break the windows. That's the you know, kind of stuff that I always carry in my mind. So you feel very vulnerable at this point. Yeah, I, I'm very uh, vulnerable, not only one side, but both sides. Uh, that, that is, you know, who the Asian Americans are right now. That's what I feel. Okay. So vulnerability is sometimes a good thing. It can create something and it can communicate to others. But uh, uh, in such kinds of time, vulnerability is weakness, uh, you know, to be broken easily. Yeah, that, that, that is what I feel as a pastor of the Korean church in these days. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me is Vox Associate Producer Cecilia Lay, Professor of American Studies Janelle Wong, and Korean Church of Boston Senior Pastor Reverend Young Gil Lee. So I want to talk about how since all of this has happened with these murders in Atlanta, the level of awareness has shot up. At the beginning of the program, we heard from Daniel Day Kim, the actor. Well, that congressional hearing had already been set up 
because of all the reasons that you talked about, all the incidents that had already happened and that happened to take place after the Atlanta murders. But now there there is movement to do more than just, you know, sort of talk about it and raise awareness. And so I want you to listen to uh, U.S. Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. She was talking to CBS about her COVID-19 hate crimes act, which she thought would be getting widespread bipartisan support. It is hardly what I would call controversial. However, I have not been able to get a Republican to support it. And in fact, I don't hear very many Republicans getting up and condemning this kind of targeted attacks against AAPIs to the point where the AAPIs have died from these attacks. So if you didn't get it, Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii is Democratic and um She's put this bill forth, and as she said, it's it's not controversial. Now, President Biden has taken some executive actions. I want to mention a few of them here. He's reestablished the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders with an emphasis on ending anti-Asian bias and violence. Uh, he has established a cross-agency Justice Department initiative to investigate anti-Asian violence and, importantly, expanded the number of languages available for translation, training for state and local law enforcement officials on how to report hate crimes. And uh, because of pressure from Senator Hirono and Senator Tammy Duckworth, he's committed to naming an AAPI person to a, quote, high-level White House position, but at this point has we don't know who that person will be. I raised this, um, Cecilia, to ask you, is this progress or how do you see it? I think that this level of attention on the federal level, it certainly does bring attention to the issues and it brings visibility that a lot of us are asking for. I do wonder how much of it is symbolic. You know, I mean, I think symbolic gestures does help. And I think, you know, for example, having a celebrity like Daniel Day Kim speak on the issues is also important for raising visibility. But I think when we're talking about solutions, I think that's the harder question. And I think looking at on the ground work is a much harder puzzle to figure out. And, you know, I I look at some of the work here in the Bay Area by community activists where some of the issues around raising alarm on an issue is that it lends itself to an oversimplification of issues sometimes. And, you know, like appointing an API person in a federal position might be good in terms of representation, but actually addressing the immediate needs you know, it may not actually be helpful at that point. Um, and so I think what my anxiety is as an Asian American person, but also as a journalist, is we have to keep talking about these issues and really like point out the complex threads of what's going on so that these big symbolic gestures don't oversimplify some of the immediate needs on the ground. And I would be remiss if I did not uh, bring up that. I have heard from many um, Asian American spokespersons that they want to be able to speak for themselves. So to you, I am referencing the Meet the Press panel. The conversation was about Asian American incidents of violence or violence against Asian Americans, and there was not one Asian expert on the panel. Yeah, I think that is absolutely the issue. I think representation of newsrooms and in journalism, especially because now Asian American journalists feel the responsibility of trying to say what we've been trying to say for such a long time, but also bring our cultural competency into these conversations. That's really important. 
So, Professor Wong, let's pick up on that. Symbolic, uh, some of these gestures from the executive branch of the Biden administration, as we've heard, Senator Maisie Hirono is trying to get a mostly symbolic bill passed and is having difficulty with that. How do you see this? I really couldn't agree with Cecilia Moore. I think that uh, this attention is critically important, but it is also an opportunity to go beyond symbols. And that is really the conversation I think that many Asian American organizational leaders are having right now is how do we get to the root causes of anti-Asian bias? How do we really address systemic white supremacy in our nation? And there's no simple solution. And so, you know, I've been really heartened to see community organizations that have been working with Asian American communities for a very long time really push the debate so that solutions are not simple. For instance, there has been real pushback against simply going to law enforcement and increased law enforcement as a response to even street violence. I think Asian Americans are well aware that just doubling down on law enforcement can be quite harmful when that law enforcement and and our criminal justice system is flawed. And as we're witnessing right now, the trial of George Floyd's killer. And so one of the things that has come out, I think, of this moment is that there are a lot of different views, but there are views that are really questioning a kind of simple uh, solution. Another thing that community organizations have been emphasizing is the need for long-term investments, not kind of surface level attention to these issues, but invest in community organizations, in outreach, in services, in systemic support for all communities of color to get at the root causes and underlying conditions that allow for anti-Asian bias and other kinds of racism to flourish in society. Reverend Lee, what would you like to see happen beyond symbolic gestures, as both Professor Wong and Cecilia Lay have mentioned, that these are what we've heard about are maybe just simply symbolic gestures, but there's more to be done? As a Korean pastor, I I appreciate their effort, endeavor. However, you know, I think everyone believes that it cannot solve all the problems. Matter of fact, right after Atlanta, the Brookline Police Department called us, Korean Church of Boston, and being said, Korean Church of Boston and the town is very good relationship, so that uh, we want to protect your church. So can I patrol on the Sunday? And we politely declined their offer. Since patrolling doesn't have any effect or solve this kind of issue, And we think that, uh, on the other hand, it might abrogate some kind of tension. So uh, we politely declined. So I think, you know, uh, this is a time for the Asian, not only church congregations, but also all the people. We need to find out what we didn't do for the whole community. Uh, I'm so grateful for the, you know, politicians do uh, on behalf of us, uh, but uh, also we have to do on our own, on a grassroots level. So what's missing, that's what we need to find out, that this is a good opportunity for us to reflect who we are, what we have done, and what we have not done for the last several decades. I want to point out, thank you, uh, Reverend Lee, that 
I know we've been speaking in the past tense about some high-profile incidents, but just to be clear, all of this violence is continuing. We just saw this horrific beatdown of an older Asian woman in New York. Turns out it's by a homeless man who killed his mother. You know, so obviously there's some mental health issues there, but I'm reluctant to allow everybody to put that on mental health issues, all the incidents that we have seen thus far, and they're continuing. Harvard is taking some heat from Asian American students because they put on the resources page to help Asian American students, you know, deal with some of this trauma that when you experience racism, you can feel shame. You may wish that you weren't Asian. That didn't go over well. And there are any number of other recent incidents and episodes that I could point to. So I'm saying that to say this isn't over. And I thought that comedian Bowen Yang talked about why it was important for people to pay attention to this because it wasn't going away when he spoke about the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes on a recent Saturday Night Live. I'm just a comedian. I don't have the answers, but I'm not just looking for them online. I'm looking around me. The GoFundMe for Xiao Jinxie, the grandmother who fought back against her attacker, raised $900,000, which she immediately gave back to the community. That's where we are as Asians. Now come meet us there. So the role of allies, Cecilia. Oh, gosh, it's so important. As we know, this country has been going through a racial reckoning uh, since last summer with the George Floyd protests. And I think there's also an internal reckoning happening in the Asian American community. What Professor Wong alluded to earlier, we're having to negotiate all the other identities uh, within our group that have such different experiences that there's not even solidarity within our own community on how to talk about this issue, you know, when it comes to policing or solutions. So I think because we are now writing, hopefully, this momentum of increased racial awareness in this country, and we're talking about white supremacy very starkly at this point, you know, I think allies and solidarity is a solution forward. And even as journalists, we're exploring what does that even look like? What, what, how do we amplify the solidarity efforts on the ground, especially because now at this in this moment, there's this really dangerous time for increased friction between communities of color, especially as coverage around these issues are increased. So allies, absolutely. And I think, you know, what Bowen is alluding to in that really smart segment is that this is going to have to take not just like a social media, I support you and I hear you, but it's also like, let's dig into the issues and actually get our hands a little bit dirty and understand how we arrived here and how groups have been fighting in parallel to white supremacy and where are the opportunities to sort of align with each other and understand each other's pain. That's going to be critical uh, moving forward. Professor Wong, what about allies? You know, the mainstream media does tend to cover um, horrific cases like the case you mentioned in New York when there is a Black assailant. And the fact of the matter is that Black people are not disproportionately attacking Asian Americans, but they are covered more in the news in these incidents. And so I just want to draw, have us reflect on that for a moment. You know, that does seed some tensions within the community. The fact is that Black Americans have been allies of Asian Americans. So even at the time of Chinese exclusion, when it was very hard and almost nobody 
spoke out on behalf of Chinese who were being excluded for all of the same kinds of stereotypes that we are seeing driving the contemporary hate. It was really Frederick Douglass who said, this is wrong, this is not humanitarian, and really came to the defense of Chinese immigrants. And at the beginning of this pandemic, Black people with institutional power in New York, the Attorney General set up a hotline. We saw the Congressional Black Caucus stand uh, with Asian American legislators to condemn the president's rhetoric. So I think we do benefit from and must recognize that at the institutional level, we've seen a lot of allyship uh, between communities. And I think it's a re- it's a time for Asian Americans to reflect on our own allyship too. So for instance, you mentioned Harvard. Well, some Asian Americans have been trying to tear down affirmative action and raise conscious admissions through the Harvard affirmative action case. And to me, that is not confronting white supremacy. That is really giving in to white supremacy. And it's a time to rethink our position, our own position as allies, as we see and feel what so many communities of color feel every day. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me is Vox Associate Producer Cecilia Lay, Professor of American Studies, Janelle Wong, and Korean Church of Boston Senior Pastor, Reverend Young Gil Lee. Reverend Lee, you spoke earlier about your allyship in a conversation with ministers of different faiths and and races. Uh, What do you see would be a good next step? Because this is ongoing and... What you don't want to have happen is people say, okay, well, we talked about those episodes. Okay, isn't that over? So just to keep this sort of in the front of everybody's minds, but at the same time, in a constructive way, try to think about ways in, in which to to meet it, as as comedian uh, Boeing Yang said. So, Reverend Lee, what would you say in terms of what would be a good next step? Yeah, we have a Boston area groups, and we are about to have meetings all together, but uh, as of today, I haven't met yet, uh, so I am speaking only for myself, and actually, in this Boston area, our church belongs to, to the one prepstory of Boston, and the prepstory of Boston already uh, said a statement uh, against this kind of action, and uh, it has been distributed to all the churches in this area. But still, we do not have strong leadership in this area in terms of this kind of action. That's what I think I'm missing in this area. So, But, Reverend Lee, what I find always so extraordinary for persons of faith like yourself in these kinds of times of trauma and stress and really frustration and anger and appropriate anger for so many people who are suffering from this this kind of racism. How do you as a pastor, what do you say now to people who are suffering right now? Because we know this is not over as we look ahead to whatever may come. What can be said? They came here to make their American dream come true, but all of a sudden, because of some kind of racism, they kind of make it. I don't think the right proper words can be said enough for them. I just prayed for those victims right after the incident when I heard. I just prayed. Matter of fact, not only I just prayed for the victims, 
actually, I prayed for the offender and his family also. Yeah, that's all I can do. Cecilia Lay, what would you suggest as we go forward in covering this story? Because there'll be many iterations of it as we continue, as I said. Something we should be paying attention to so as it doesn't get overlooked in the coverage. Yeah, I think that some of the guidance that the Asian American Journalists Association has been giving to Newsroom is, you know, please to provide as much context as you can in, in the stories, in the coverage. And also just to really not rely on assumptions about what's happening here, which is so easy to do when we're dealing with such a complex issue. And I think really understanding and amplifying the voices of people who are affected. I think with the Atlanta shootings in particular, the early coverage was just another form of invisibility. You know, people rendered the the victims as sex workers without really understanding. And now it's been revealed that, you know, these are Korean women who were in their 60s and 70s who were just trying to make ends meet and they weren't sex workers. So I think trying to go directly to the community, but not to parachute in. Talk to the people who actually understand the community and are covering the community thoughtfully. And that's a lot of Asian American journalists who have been wanting and have been asking for the chance to do this in a respectful, nuanced way. And Professor Wong, um, from you, what should we be paying attention to um, as this story continues. Uh, I'm sad to say I, I know it's going to, given what we've seen in just the last couple of days. One of the things that feels like it could be a productive response to this moment is for people to better understand ethnic studies and the fight for ethnic studies and why to this day students and community members have been pushing for ethnic studies, not only at the college level, but also at the K through 12 level. I think that there's been so much debate around like critical race theory and understanding whiteness in the United States, but this moment is a sad reminder that we do need to better understand race and racism and how it affects all of us. Well, I thank you all for joining me today. And I hope I don't have to gather you again for another conversation anytime soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Cecilia Lay is an associate producer for Vox's Today Explained and board president of the Asian American Journalists Association's San Francisco chapter. Janelle Wong is professor of American Studies and core faculty member in the Asian American Studies program at the University of Maryland. Reverend Young Gil Lee is senior pastor at the Korean Church of Boston. Coming up, while policy debates rage on in Washington, local citizens in America's small towns and cities are rethinking old ways of governance and civic duty. Our Towns, a new HBO documentary, samples the goings-on in eight towns across the country. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. How do the Americans who live in small towns and cities see the places they live? 
Thousands of residents in those towns were eager to answer the question posed by award-winning Atlantic Magazine journalist James Fallows. Fallows and his wife Deborah traveled across the country for five years, visiting with local residents. We went to these places before the pandemic. But what we saw about how towns rise and fall and fight to recover has a lot to say to our world right now as we try to create a new future for ourselves. What the Fallows documented in their travels resulted in a 2019 book, Our Towns, a 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America. Eight of the towns and cities they highlighted in their book are featured in an HBO documentary called Our Towns, which premieres this week on the streaming services HBO and HBO Max. Joining me remotely, Steve Asher and Jeannie Jordan, Academy Award-nominated filmmakers who directed, produced, and shot and edited Our Towns. Welcome, Steve and Jeannie. Hi there. Hi, Callie. I'm so glad to have both of you. I think it was important for Jim to put a little context in our conversation because pre-COVID is really an interesting time period. But it was also, as we see throughout your film, people were reacting to the recession still, you know, years later. So that people can sort of have a sense of, you know, what people were grappling with at the time that you hit the road. So first of all, how did you all get involved and why were you interested? Well, three years ago in 2018, uh, we got a call from Lisa Heller at HBO, and they had optioned Our Towns, uh, James Fallows and Deborah Fallows' book. And we've always been great fans of theirs, so she was asking if she might line us up on a double date to do a film of the book. And that's really how it all began. We met with them, and we are like-minded, so it, it turned out to be great. These are intimate stories, as it turns out, but on its face, it seems big, like you're running around to all these cities, and what, what are we going to see when we get there? What are we going to want to know? What was the common thread that you saw right away, Steve? Well, we didn't think of ourselves as exactly making the book into a film as much as taking the ideas that the fellows had been doing from originally this started with a blog post that Jim had posted asking people what they thought was interesting about their towns. That turned into a, a series of web articles that turned into the book. And then the film kind of takes those ideas and leverages them into a movie which has different needs than a book. So one thing is that we knew that we needed to film things that were happening now. And Jeannie did an amazing job of finding stories in all these towns remotely. I mean, we didn't go to them. We didn't pre-scout them or anything. We, together with the Fallows, we looked at looking at towns that were all over the country, different sizes. The smallest is Eastport, Maine, which is only 1,300 people. The largest is San Bernardino. And then there were some that we went to because of interesting themes, like how did a town deal with its racial history, or in the case of Bend, Oregon, a town that had been severely depressed in the 80s and had reinvented itself, and like what were the costs and benefits of success? What I thought was interesting is that in most places that you went to, the folks that spoke to you were very aware of how or how they believe they're thought of, the people that live in these small towns and cities. I want to play a clip from the film. This is from Chris Gardner, who is a resident and a Renaissance man in Eastport, Maine, where you were just referring to. It's just that belief that somehow, by living out here, we're not as metropolitan and as savvy as to what's going on with the world. I would argue, perhaps we know it even a little better, because we take the time to focus on it. 
and that makes us a whole lot more worldly than people believe. That's probably the one stick jab, if you will, when you go to a big city and somebody finds out you're from a small town. They just assume that you, you haven't been paying attention. I found that fascinating, um, and I was trying to check myself to see, do I think that? I don't think that, I think. I just think it's a smaller version, probably, of, of uh, bigger cities. But in fact, what you found, um, Jeannie, is that these small towns have a, a certain kind of flow and ebb to them that's quite distinct from larger places. Right. Well, one, one thing I have to say starting out is I grew up on a farm near a very, very small town. So when I first moved to the Boston area, I found that people did have pretty distinct ideas about what it meant to be from rural or small areas. I think that maybe that is not quite as prevalent as it was then, but we, we basically went into these situations completely open to whatever we found there. And I, I would say that everyone was very much the same in that they really wanted to help us uh, make this film. They were thrilled that we were in their towns. They all loved their towns. So it, it, it was a surprising experience on that level because I, I don't know that all towns feel so strongly about the fact that they're the best kept secret at anywhere, but certainly uh, the ones we went to felt that. And one of the themes in the book is about how people choose to live in unexpected places and have, uh, you know, unexpected talents just because we all kind of overlay cliches about what a small town life is like. And one thing that's been really interesting post-pandemic is that uh, initially we talked about, for example, Bend, Oregon as a place where you could do remote work. And originally in the film, we kind of explained about that. Now... The entire country is doing remote work, many of them from very smaller places than where their work is located. So that whole sense of what does a small town mean now has changed. Well, in fact, it, there's a new word or a new expression for it. I don't know if you guys have heard this. It's called the Zoom boom for all of these <laughs> all of these uh, small towns where people got out of town, really, for sure, uh, during COVID and went to small towns. So at some point when you guys decide to take a roll through some of these communities and see what's happened, I will be very interested to see if some of the people who came um, for the moment, if you will, during the COVID time, decide to stay. Because, Steve, picking up on what you said, the thing that becomes so clear is that most of the people, if they weren't born there, they become so attached to these places, so of the place. That is why they're so enthusiastic about what can be done there, what should be done there, what they want to do to make it better. And I found that pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. Right. Definitely. And the other thing that I thought was interesting is that if I went back and looked, a lot of the people that you featured in talking about what was going on were people who may have been born there, left, came back, and then they become one of the movers and shakers in town. But these communities, these people were just drawn to them again. Right. And we were really struck by this, that so often in these towns, people that had lived away for a long time had decided they really wanted to live where they came from. But they also kind of wanted to add to it, change it, uh, reinvigorate it. And it's amazing some of the stories we have. Eastport has two brothers, uh, Hugh and Edward French. Edward runs the paper. Hugh runs the Tide Institute, which is a wonderful museum. 
Uh, they went away for years. And what people like that do when they come back to their town is, A, they understand the town very well, but B, they bring new energy in. And it happened more than I would have guessed. I have to say, I was quite struck by that. The other thing about Eastport, Maine, it sounded kind of vaguely familiar to me when I saw the, your piece, and then I realized that that's the headquarters of the home of the Passamaquoddy tribe. Yes. And the Passamaquoddies, yes. I don't know if you all know, are one of the few tribes that are now putting together their language. They're teaching the younger people from the older people how to be fluent in the language that at one time people feared was lost. Right, right. right. And that's an important theme in, in the film. You also filmed with the Flandreau Santee Sioux in South Dakota, where cultural preservation and language preservation is really important to them. So before I go into some of the content of the film, I just want to comment on the look of the film. First of all, you two are, you know, renowned filmmakers, so it looks fabulous, <laughs> of course. Thank we you, would Kathy. We, we would expect Thanks. nothing less. But I was struck by your intentionality in going into these tiny towns, small ones, from big, big, broad drone photos showing mm -hmm. the land. And I know that was a deliberate choice. Yeah. So talk to me about why you decided to do it that way. Well, so James and Deborah Fallows, you know, Jim is a pilot of a tiny, tiny little plane. It's big enough for basically two people. And when they wrote the book, they would use this plane to get to a lot of the places that are very hard to get to by driving, or they would just take too long. So in the book, the aerial view of America and what you see of a town as you come into it, what you can tell about the patterns of settlement and you know where different neighborhoods are is an important part of the book. So when we started, we knew that we wanted to tell this story from three different altitudes, you know, the 4,000 feet where, where their plane flies, 400 feet, which is the upper limit of a drone. Uh, and we worked with a really talented drone pilot and cinematographer and we, you know, the storytelling is in part about moving through these spaces at different heights and experiencing what the human landscape is like and what the physical landscape is like. Well, it had the effect of, for me as a viewer of thinking the big country is made up of all of these small places where this is the heartbeat of America. That's the effect yeah. that it had on me. Yeah, that's that, great. That worked so well. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Academy Award-nominated filmmakers Steve Asher and Jeannie Jordan. Their HBO documentary, Our Towns, is available on Tuesday, April 13th at 9 p.m. on HBO, as we've said, and HBO Max as well. All right, so... The theme, of course, is community and what communities can do when they put their minds to it uh, to become innovative, just with the folks at hand. No big policymakers, per se, the people on the ground. I was quite struck by what was going on in the segment on Columbus, Mississippi, small town. So let's take a listen to East Mississippi Community College Vice President Raj Shunak, and he's speaking with Deborah Fallows. This is the Communiversity near Columbus, Mississippi. This is highly technical. It is not the old shop. The old vocational school was uh, sometimes a, a penalty a person paid. Pressed at every station. We are second chances for people to get that high school equivalency, to get a job. Many individuals in our community are one flat tire away from losing their job or not finishing their education. We help 
bring partners to removing those barriers. We lift up the community as a whole. That's the best description <laughs> of community college and what you do that I've heard anywhere. If it can happen here in the poorest of all states, then surely the positive things are replicable elsewhere. That was pretty inspirational, I have to say, their, their story and what's going on there. Raj and Eastern Mississippi Community College was, was such a wonderful example of people that poured a lot of intentionality into a situation. And Raj, this has been his life's work. And it's an amazing place. I've got to believe other people are looking at that as a model. Of course, they're community colleges, but the way in which they've integrated all the stuff that uh, we know community colleges that are successful can do by, you know, having a product really at the end and uh, bringing up folks in the community, that that was really quite impressive. So I'm yeah. I'm going to guess we're going to see that elsewhere. Right. And, you know, they're, they're such an important force for combating inequality. You know, Columbus, they were in a very depressed economic area, and they just kind of picked themselves up. They created this organization called Link, which brought in all these high-tech manufacturers, and they just kind of made it happen. And they went from a place that, you know, made hot dogs and toilet seats and turned into a high-tech powerhouse. One of the other stories that really struck me, uh, this was something I thought, wow, talk about innovation. So in West Virginia, where they came up with a plan for the cops to move into the neighborhoods where they were spending a lot of time arresting people, what they called a challenged neighborhood. And they, and along with teachers, could afford the housing. And then the cops, as a result of being there, as one of them said, got a whole other perspective on the people that live there, which in return then really brought us to what community policing is all about. Absolutely. That was a real find. It was started by two policemen, and they, with help from the city council, pushed it through but it really, it allows people to, teachers and cops, to move into a neighborhood, be basically given a, a huge loan, almost given a house, which is then rehabilitated, fixed up. And the, this was the really interesting piece for us was everyone that is working on it is basically a felon. They paired with the prison nearby and created a program where they're training inmates to do construction work with all kinds of help. And it had so many different ways that it was an amazing program and things were working together. We were, we were just blown away by it. Now, you want to talk about a program that needs to be all over the country. Right. I mean, <laughs> how many people right. would just right. leap at having a house, and then you keep the people yes. there because they're in the community. Yeah. Right. The, what we've been hearing through COVID is a redefinition or people thinking about redefining what community means. This was done before COVID. So I wonder if either of you have, based on your work on this film, did you come away with how you would define community through the eyes of the people that you profiled? Well, I think even pre-COVID, you know, in the way we live these days, sometimes it's hard to know how much you are part of a community because it's very easy to feel quite isolated. And then when the lockdown happened, we all just lived in these bubbles and really it isn't clear how we're connected to the other people that we live with or even, you know, in the larger world. And we were constantly amazed by the people that we met who felt that 
their mission in life was not just their own lives, but the lives of their neighbors. And not in some kind of smarmy, do-gooding way that wasn't, you know, just authentic. That that's, you know, that, that this is something that they really were energized by, and they really wanted to uplift their communities in all these different ways. And it was incredibly inspiring to see this. On the one-year anniversary of the lockdown in Massachusetts, I did a conversation with some futurists and asked them to look ahead beyond COVID and cite trends that they thought were going to be invaluable beyond. And one of them said grit. And noted that it was intangible, but said this is what she predicted companies are going to have to look for in future employees. And it occurred to me while watching your film that grit was very much something that was valued in all of the communities that you visited and was uh, put into practice every, pretty much every place you went. Yep. And, and I think also, it, you know, it was part of our approach in making the film. We weren't setting out to be cheerleaders. You know, we really wanted to show the tension between some quite dark forces in the country and some incredibly energetic, gritty forces to try to pull out of those things. I mean, as Jim Fallows often says, you know, the country has always been in trouble and it's always getting itself out of trouble. And we're really interested in the tension between those two forces. And grit is an essential element in that. And I would also say one of the things we were so struck by is the versatility of people. In many of these towns, people wore a lot of different hats, did a lot of different things. And during the lockdown, we sort of kept in touch a little bit with people that we'd become friends with in the towns. And it was amazing to see how being in struggle on some levels over the years made them handle this in a really pretty strong way. There is a way that pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever way you define grit uh, was something we saw everywhere. And I think it's something that we all found we needed very badly during this time. And I think there's a, you know, that the quote that you played from the beginning of the film about, you know, what we saw about how towns fight to recover, pretty much everywhere we went has been laid really low at some point in its history. And some of them have pulled themselves up a lot, some of them not so much yet. But that whole process and reminding ourselves that, you know, America has this long history of high times and low times. And at each pivot point, you know, there's a lot of determination that is required to change the trajectory. And I think we're at one of those inflection points right now. I want to note that there was a deliberate choice by Jim and Deborah Fallows to have no political conversation. That was not a part of the equation of how they interacted with the people that they talked to or asked people about, you know, how right. they were living and right. thriving in their various towns. And Jim, as a longtime journalist, really understood that that conversation becomes it quickly very, very narrow if you ask the questions. So we didn't, and no one brought it up. Yes. Jim has a short list of, and I'll just mention a few, of what makes stuff work in these communities. The, a focus on local issues, you feel a responsibility to community leadership, of course, community colleges, local newspapers and media, and public art. And I love this part, a stubbornness about imagining a better future. So I'm going to say this to you, Steve Asher. Some of these towns look so good. I was thinking to myself, I could move there. I came away with a few <laughs> favorites. I'm wondering if you two have favorites. <laughs> we had the privilege of being, you know, at the very farthest east point you can get on the country, Eastport, Maine, right at the edge of Canada. 
And then, you know, Bend, Oregon on the other corner, there was so much beauty. And in each one of them, we, we'd, we would look at each other and say, yeah, I could do this. I have a real soft spot for Charleston, West Virginia, because it was the first town we went to. And it was a place that you could see it was happening. It's happening now. The ways they've been brought down and they lost coal, the opioid epidemic is centered in West Virginia in so many ways. But it's a beautiful town. It's a town that aspires to be like Vermont because it's in the mountains and it's so gorgeous. And all of those things together made me just feel like this would be a fabulous place to live. Well, so much was going on in every place that you mentioned. I have to, this is my final question to both of you. Did you feel a little bit more, this is going to sound corny, American at the end of this? Absolutely, Kelly. One of the things that I've, I've been so grateful for in this is, you know, we were doing this at a really, really difficult time in, in divisive and hard time in this country. And every time we went out, it was like a vacation. Not the hard work part, but just going out disconnecting from cable television, disconnecting from the news, being on the ground, living with people the way they live. Uh, It just felt like America is indomitable. It just keeps going. And we felt like we were a part of it. You know, one of the things that's really important to us is to tell stories about people kind of from their point of view and not overlay on them outsiders' views of the way they live. And if you watch cable TV, you would think of America in very cliched terms, uh, red versus blue. And that really is so much less interesting than the way life is actually being led in this country. So, you know, it was that kind of dynamic life force that we felt. It does make you feel patriotic in, a, in an odd way. It's not, not the obvious you know, kind of flag waving way, but just a kind of uh, amazement and pride in what people are capable of. And respect. Well, I thank you both for joining me today. Fabulous work. Thank you so much, Callie, for having us. Thank you. Steve Asher and Jeannie Jordan are Academy Award-nominated filmmakers who directed, produced, shot, and edited the HBO documentary Our Towns. Look for it on HBO and HBO Max. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org slash news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Wes Martin and engineered by Dave Goodman. Angela Yang is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>